Mark 10, 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not be defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left the house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. All right, well, uh, before we jump into this passage, let me share a quick story with you. I debated about whether or not it was too early to tell this story, but I'm risking it, so it's okay. When I was in college, I ran the junior high ministry at our church, um, and it was basically me and my college roommate herding, you know, 30 or 40 junior high age kids, and it involved eating a lot of Cheetos and doing gross things with food, you know, general junior high kind of ministry stuff. But one weekend, we found ourselves in charge of a camp out of about 30 of these students, um, and we did it on the property of a good uh, friend of ours from church. Um, so we built the campfire, we had the hot dogs, we roasted the s'mores. We very responsibly and safely put that campfire out and went to sleep in the barn. The next morning, I got up. I double-checked the campfire, okay? It's good. We all pack up, we ship out, and we leave. Two days later, I get a phone call from these family friends who had gotten home from their weekend away, and they said, hey, Luke, would you please kindly come out to our property? We have something we want to show you. So me and my friend, we drive out there, and we pull up. And when we pull up, what we see is acres and acres of charred prairie grass, you know, just, just burnt black land, okay? And that fire had come within about 20 feet of their barn and about 10 feet of their house. I mean, we almost burnt down their entire property. A little ember, you know, buried in that fire pit that we didn't see had caught up in the wind, caught a dry bush, and got that whole, um, their whole property on fire. So we, um, they made us, basically, they made us, like as young college students, they made us walk around their whole property, not to embarrass us or shame us, but just to sort of show us, like, 
okay, you're dealing with something powerful here, right? We want you to understand the implications of what you're dealing with. And uh, the worst part, insult to injury, because we were walking around in it, you know, our feet got all black. And then when we walked into their house, we smeared it on their white carpet. And it was just like, get us out of here. Like, we just, we want to go. Um, Of course, we were embarrassed. But what I left that day thinking was, man, there is power in this, um, in that fire, in that single ember. And all that was before I moved here, right? I mean, if we know anything from this summer, we know how these things can get out of control. Fire is good. It's fun. It's warm. It brings light. It brings life. Yet, at the very same time, it can be destructive and even deadly, okay? Something that's a gift when it's used appropriately when it stays in its place, something um, becomes something very serious and even a source of destruction if it gets out of control. In our passage today, uh, from the Gospel of Mark, Jesus addresses another force in our world. Just as necessary, just as good, just as life-giving, just as powerful, and therefore just as potentially destructive if it isn't handled in the right way. It's a force all of us deal with every single day, most of us probably have some of it tucked away in our pocket right now. This morning wants us to talk about money. He wants us to talk about our finances. He wants us to talk about the resources that he's given each of us. Throughout the book of Mark, we've seen this. Jesus, the teacher, wants to to teach his followers what it means to be his disciples in the real world, in, in really practical ways. Jesus gets very down to earth. He's basically saying a faith that doesn't intersect and impact our everyday, nitty-gritty, day-to-day mundane lives is not really a faith that's transformative. It's not really a faith that can um, change our life. And so Jesus is making sure that his followers, then and now, know that his love and his grace and his gospel extend to every area of our life. So in this section in Mark, we've seen him address marriage. uh, In a couple weeks, we're going to look at how he talks about kids. He even talks about paying taxes, okay? I mean, we're talking like nitty-gritty, everyday kind of stuff. And this morning, he wants us to consider how our finances can be shaped more and more by his gospel love that he's shown us. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to spend the first half of our time sort of looking at at the dual nature of money, if you will, how it can be such a great gift on the one hand and such a danger on the other. But then I want to spend the second half of our time um, asking the question, how? Okay, like how does God's word direct us and instruct us practically to use our resources in such a way that nurtures the gift and avoids the danger, okay? So that's where we're heading this morning. Um, And since I'm a pastor talking to a room full of people about money, let's go ahead and pray before we get started and ask for God's help, all right? Uh, Heavenly Father, we know that you love us, and for that very reason, you don't want to leave any part of our lives untouched by your promises and by your gospel and by your care. Thank you for being involved enough in our life to extend your comments, your instructions, and your love even into our money and our finances. We pray for your insight. Most of all, we pray that you would be held high and glorified and honored this morning as we look at your word. We ask these things in your name. Amen. 
Okay, so the first thing that we see in this passage is that money is a gift of God for good. Mark 10, 17, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And this young man said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, from here and, and in the other gospel accounts, we know that this man Jesus is interacting with today is young and that he's rich and that he's a ruler of some kind. Okay, He's commonly referred to as the young rich ruler. And he has power. He has influence. He was upwardly mobile. He was probably handsome. I mean, if you're young and you're rich, it's like hard not to be handsome, right? You just kind of like, that's just part of the deal. Uh, and yet with all of this going for him, he comes to Jesus humbly, worshipfully, knowing he doesn't have it all together, and he asks an honest spiritual question. How or what must I do to inherit eternal life? So now this guy is spiritually sensitive too, right? I mean, like some people just have everything going for him. And to begin the surgical spiritual diagnosis that this man needs and that we need to answer his question, to understand his true heart condition, Jesus begins by quoting the second half of the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament. These are the laws, the second half of the Ten Commandments are are the laws that have to do with how God wants his people to treat one another. These are the the horizontal laws, so to speak. They're how we are meant to relate to one another in this world. And the man basically says, look, I've I've kept these. I've, I've like done this right. I've kept these from my youth. I've never defrauded anyone. In all my business dealings, I haven't lied to anybody. I haven't stolen in all the transactions that I've overseen. I've done this thing as well as I can do it. I've done it right. And um, interesting, Jesus doesn't challenge him on this claim. Jesus kind of lets that lie, and he doesn't say, no, you liar. You can't get rich in this world without being a scumbag. He says, no, no, like, I believe you, right? I believe that you're doing this thing right, I think we can assume that this was a good man, that he acquired his wealth honestly, and he used his wealth justly. And this is our first insight into how Jesus wants us to understand our money as well. Our resources are a gift from God that can be used as a gift towards those around us. If you're not careful here and other places in the Bible, you could read this story and think that what keeps this man from following Jesus in the end is the amount of money he has, right? That the fact that he's rich is what kept him from following Jesus. But that's not true. That's not what it says. The Bible never communicates that wealth in and of itself is wrong. Even the most misquoted verse in the Bible agrees with this. You guys know what the most misquoted verse in the Bible is? 1 Timothy 6.10 does not say money is the root of all evil. You know what it says? It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, okay? And that distinction is key. Money is not the problem. On the contrary, very often throughout the Bible, wealth is described as a gift from God. Deuteronomy 8, you shall remember the Lord your God. It's he who gives you the power to get wealth, that you may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers 
as it is this day. Proverbs 22, humility and the fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life. Abraham, Job, King David, Solomon, Lydia, the businesswoman in Acts 6, who is converted to Christianity and becomes a gospel partner with Paul as he takes the gospel to places it's never been. All of these people throughout the Bible were very wealthy, and the Bible esteems them. Okay? Mark himself, the author of our gospel that we've been going through uh, for a while now, was probably, we don't know this for sure, but he was probably a rich kid from the swanky neighborhoods in Jerusalem who ended up, uh, his family ended up hosting the Last Supper that Jesus and his disciples would have before Jesus' crucifixion. So even Mark himself came from a background of means. The picture the Bible gives us about money is that it's a good gift from God in order to be a blessing to those around us. Our money, if we want to get technical about it, it's not really ours in the first place, okay? Yes, it's ours to manage for a time, but all the wealth, all the resources, all the goodness, all the riches of this world ultimately belong to God, the creator, the sustainer, and the king of all things. And he, in his generosity, entrusts some of it to us. We are his money managers, okay? He sends us some resources. We are to manage them in his name for the good of the world on behalf of his kingdom. We've been entrusted with a portion of his riches. And this is how money is a gift. When it remains sort of in its lane, so to speak, or in that fire pit, so to speak, when it's used in the way that God intends us to use it. Uh, however, in our, uh, or sorry, like that fire that we all know has the power and this tendency to spread beyond the purpose it was meant for, somehow in our sin and in our wandering hearts, that for some crazy reason, we always do this, our wandering hearts for some crazy reason are constantly looking for ways to live as if God doesn't exist and as if we don't need him all the time in our life. What we do is we begin to invest money with the kinds of meaning it was never intended to carry in the first place. It jumps outside of its lane and it begins to spread. And this is the reason that while money is a gift, it's also deeply dangerous. By all accounts, as we said, this rich young ruler had acquired and even used his money well. He had been a gift to others. But as we pick up our story we realize that his wealth had also become a danger to his own soul. So picking up in verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Okay, You cannot spend enough time thinking about that little clause. Jesus did all that he's about to do to this man, said all that he's about to say to this man, motivated by a deep love for that man. Looking at him, he loved him, and he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And disheartened by this saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. 
Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That little parable right there has gotten a lot of press from people trying to figure out what it means. I pretty much just think it means this is the smallest thing in our world and this is the biggest thing in our world. And it's crazy to think that a camel is going to fit through the eye of a needle. Okay, This is a very difficult thing to enter the kingdom of God. And when he said this, his disciples were exceedingly astonished. These are some of Jesus' hardest words in the Gospels. I mean, even his disciples' minds are blown, okay? I mean, they're not just amazed. They're exceedingly astonished that he would say something so drastic. The thing is, it's not just here. Money and the dangers of money and the gift of money and how to handle our money, it's actually one of Jesus' most talked about and consistent topics. I mean, he talks about money 10 times more than he talks about sex in the New Testament. He talks about money 10 times more than he talks about heaven and hell in the New Testament. This is not a kind of one-off, like, remember that time Jesus said that crazy thing? Like, he's regularly going back to this exact principle. Why? Why does Jesus return again and again to our finances? I think it's because of the first four commandments that Jesus skipped over on purpose in the spiritual diagnosis of this young man. Remember, the the second half, the, the six that he did mention, are the horizontal commandments about how we relate to one another. But the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament are the foundational ones. They're the vertical ones that describe our relationship with God. Have no other gods before me. Don't worship idols. Keep my name holy and remember the Sabbath. These are the commands that describe the deep allegiance of our hearts. I mean, who do we worship? Who do we revere? Whose name are we, are we working to keep honored and holy and famous through the way we live our lives? Where, where is it that we're looking for rest? Like, not just like a good night's sleep, but like that deep soul rest that comes from knowing we're safe and loved and meaningful and valued? Where are we looking for that salvation and that hope? That's what the first four commandments all address. And by all accounts, this man used his money well as he interacted with others. His, but his money had become the answer to the deepest questions of worship that his heart was asking. A good gift from God had begun to take the place of God himself in this young man's life. And in asking him to give away his wealth, I mean, this is like dramatic measures. This isn't like take four Advil and call me in the morning. This is like there's cancer and we need to do surgery this afternoon and he might not make it out. But remember, he's doing this because he loved him, okay? He's doing this because he loved this man so much. And he asks him, can you live in a world when you have me but nothing else? Or would you rather live in a world of great possessions without me? It's a stark question, but it gets to the point. This man left, and he wasn't angry. I find this fascinating, his emotions as he left. He wasn't angry. He wasn't offended. He didn't say, you haven't asked anybody else to do this. Why are you asking me to give all my money away? He wasn't confused or indignant. How did he leave? He left sad, right? He left sorrowful. When he walked away, he was grieving 
Because when the choice was put before him so clearly, he knew in his heart that he needed his possessions in a way he didn't need Jesus. He knew that he trusted in his wealth in a way he didn't trust Jesus. And it made him sad. It made him sad. In Luke 12, Jesus says, Watch out and be on your guard against all kind of greed. Uh, this is, Jesus talks about money in a way he sort of doesn't talk about any other sins. Um, he doesn't say, like, watch out. You might be lying and not know you're lying. Usually when we're lying, we know what we're doing. He doesn't say, watch out. You might be having an affair and not know you're having an affair. If you're sleeping with someone who's not your wife or your husband, you know what you're doing, okay? He doesn't say there are all kinds of sneaky sins out there that you might be committing all the time and not knowing it. But he does say that about money. He does say this is a, a, a sneaky sort of sinister thing about money. The danger of it is that it can so easily slide into the place of God without us even realizing it, becoming more than a good gift and replacing him in our heart of worship, becoming our hope, becoming our security, becoming our salvation. I mean, when we're, when we're weary and we're looking for comfort and rest, It's just so easy and so automatic to turn to the next vacation or the next purchase or the next night out for refreshment. It's almost like it's just default mode. When we're bored and confused and we're looking for meaning and joy in our life, it's just easy. It's default to turn to the next adventure or experience that money can buy, maybe the next city or the next job. When we're anxious and we're looking for safety and security and a foundation for all of life's ups and downs, it's so natural to turn to our savings account, to our earning power, to our resources for that kind of assurance. And then when we're looking for approval, when we're looking for love, when we're looking to be valued, a sense of accomplishment, when we want to justify why we're here and how we relate to other people, it's just so easy to look to the metric of money and stack it up against others so that we know. All of those things are ultimately fulfilled and ultimately we need them in God, but money pretends to provide it, mimics so easily what only God can provide. I've always been a bit haunted by the words of Andrew Carnegie, who wrote as a young man, again, one of America's richest men in history. And as a young man at the age of, I think, 33, he wrote this in his journal. He said, a man must have an idol, the amassing of wealth, is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. This is pretty like insightful, like self-reflection for a 33-year-old man. So he says, I'm going to resign business at the age of 35. He wrote that when he was 33, and he didn't uh, retire until he was about 65, okay? Uh, So he did another 30-some years of his business amassing his wealth. There's just something about money that it can mimic God for us. And even when we recognize it, even when we see it coming, it can still drive us and take the place that only God can take. It has the ability to lure our hearts from God and leave us sad in the end. Okay, let's pray. No, just kidding. Um, That would be a terrible place to end a sermon. Come on. Um, What do we do about this? Money is this gift. 
It's a resource. It can be, it can be a, um, a way to bless and love and invest in other people and extend God's kingdom, but it also carries a deep, deep danger with it, okay? It's like that fire. If it stays in its lane, it's so life-giving, but as soon as it starts to spread, it really can take us away from God. So what do we do? How do we use our resources, our money, in Jesus' kingdom for good and not for harm? How do we receive the gift without it becoming a liability and a danger to our souls? A couple things here. First, we need a mindset change about investing our money in God's kingdom. In this passage, uh, this, is, this is fascinating. Jesus gives investment advice, okay? It's like you walk into the, the room and, you're, and your money manager or, or whoever is there, and he's telling you, like, okay, here's where I think you should put your resources for the best return on them. Jesus is literally giving us financial investment advice in this passage. He does it twice. Verse 21, he says to the young man, go and sell all that you have. Okay, that's, that's an aggressive investment right there. That's aggressive. Uh, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, so that you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And then later he says to his disciples, I say to you, there's no one in this room who has left their house, their brothers, their sisters, their mother, their father, their children, their lands, any of it, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, and in the age to come. This is investment language, okay? He's talking about how to use our resources here so that we get a greater return on them in the future. He's talking about how to leverage our resources on this earth so that we don't just have more resources here, but we have eternal gifts, a greater return forever with him. According to Jesus, investing our treasure here on earth All of it, I mean, investing all of our treasure here on earth, thinking in the short term, it's not just wrong, it's not just dangerous for our souls. He's saying it's actually a dumb investment strategy, okay? Like, if you want a better return on it, then you need to invest it in an eternal and certain place. Randy Alcorn is a pastor, and he wrote this great little book called The Treasure Principle. I'd recommend it if you haven't heard of him or haven't read it, but... um, I took this section from him, and so I'm going to quote him. He writes this, Jesus functions here as the foremost market timer. He tells us to once and for all switch investment vehicles. He instructs us to transfer our funds from earth, which is volatile and ready to take a permanent dive, to heaven, which is totally dependable, insured by God himself, and coming soon to forever replace earth's economy. Christ's financial forecast for the earth is bleak, but, his unreserved, but he is unreservedly bullish about investing in heaven, where indicator is eternally positive. An insightful and clever and thoughtful way to relate what Jesus is trying to communicate to us here. It's a mindset change. Um, the mindset shift we need to cultivate is to stop asking, what should I give so I don't feel guilty? Or how little can I get away with giving? And start asking, man, how much can I pour in to the treasures that await me in heaven by investing on this side now? How much can I pour in to buying up these shares of heavenly treasure that God himself guarantees? I mean, if you want good financial advice, like, uh, you know, certain stockbrokers know what they're doing and kind of, kind of forecast the future. You know who can really forecast the future? 
God, okay? God can forecast the future. So Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He said, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Okay, honesty time for me, and I'm sure for many of us, giving money like this, generously, joyfully, to the church or other ministries that extend God's kingdom or around the world or nonprofit organizations that really do align with God's heart for his world is something that we know we should do. And we try to do it, and we try to do our best at doing it, but it's not very natural for us. I mean, I want to want to be generous, but I find myself not really wanting it that often. And giving still feels like a cost and not very often like an investment in God's certain unstoppable kingdom of love. So I think another thing that we need, along with a mindset change, is some practical steps on how to get started in our journey of generosity with Jesus. Now, I can't confirm this for sure, but I think Google can read my mind now. Um, You know how there's those pop-up ads that always show up on the side every time you're on the computer? So what they do is they take your search history in Google, and then they personalize the ads that are going to come right at you, okay? I think Google is beginning to predict what I want before I even search for it, right? So before I even, like, whispered to another soul, maybe I want a full suspension carbon mountain bike 27-plus inches. You know, I don't know. Like, that'd be fun. I live in basalt. Um, Those ads start popping up on my computer before I've even searched for it, before I've even said that to anybody. It's getting a little creepy out there. Here's my point. The world, we do not need help being consumers in this world, okay? The world is going to help us be consumers. If we just do nothing, the downstream flow is going to take us all into self-centered consumer materialism. We don't need help being consumers. We do need help being generous, consistent, joyful givers. The only way we're going to grow in generosity as a congregation and as individuals is to do this on purpose, to to help one another, support one another, um, build this in to our plan, our financial plan. God's heart behind his commands for his people to tithe in the Old Testament was exactly this. I mean, he was training his people financially to give a percentage of their income first so that they could their, their hearts would be trained to be generous and joyful in their giving. Now, as a lot of you guys probably know, uh, that command to give 10% of our income is never repeated in the New Testament verbatim, right? Um, So it would be irresponsible for us, for me as a pastor, for us as a church to say, give 10% because that's what the Bible commands. It actually doesn't command it explicitly in the New Testament. But I also think it would be irresponsible for us as a church to discount the wisdom and the heart behind God's intention for those commands in the Old Testament and that are modeled often in even more extreme ways in the New Testament. Jesus did not need any of this man's money to fulfill his mission. Jesus is the richest and most resourced human to ever live, right? I mean, he had the bank of heaven itself at his disposal at all times. One word from Jesus, his father would have cracked open that vault and poured his riches into the ministry of his son on earth. He does not need this man's wealth, and he does not need any of our wealth. And he still asks him 
to give generously, incredibly generously. Why? Because he loved him. And it's good for him. Jesus loved him so much that he asked that he give far beyond 10% of his money towards the kingdom. Jesus loves you and me enough to ask that we be generous as well. I would encourage you, this is about as practical as as we're going to get here, to, to start a conversation in your family. What could it look like for you to incrementally, progressively build the percentage of your giving to God's kingdom? I mean, could, could you get to that 10%? And if you can, like, why stop there? The, the, the principle here seems to be like, uh, what can we give towards God's kingdom because we're his money managers and we get an investment on that return for eternity? And if you're like me, that question is scary because of the place that money holds in my heart and in my life. Um, I mean, I've personally met people uh, and have read about people who have figured out how to give like 30 and 90% of their money away uh, to God's work in the world. And I think they're insane. Like, like I look at them I'm like, you are crazy. And then I read the Bible and I think, man, you're onto something, right? Like that makes sense. Looking for ways to give and be generous. Investing in the eternal returns and not just the temporary ones. I think it stirs up a whole bunch of emotions in us and probably in you too. The only way we're going to be able to handle our money without fear, without anxiety, without guilt or shame or anger is if, and this is the final thing we're going to look at, the final practical piece of God's um, vision for our money, is if we realize that this story is not actually about one rich young ruler. This is a story about two rich young rulers. Okay, As we've already said, Jesus asked this man to give up everything to love and serve the needy around him. But he only asked this young man to do on a much smaller scale what he himself has already personally done on a global scale. Jesus is the true rich young ruler who fully obeyed the call of God on his life to lay down his treasure, to enter poverty, to even take on death in order to extend the riches of his kingdom to the poor and the needy in this world, all of us. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul tells us, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. It's only when we begin to realize that Jesus, in Jesus, there really is no poverty, right? There, There really is no eternal risk. There is fullness of joy. There is hope for eternity. Only when we begin to internalize and believe in our bones, that we're rich in Christ? Will any of these challenging and frankly offensive and hard to talk about things about money begin to make any sense at all? Only when we believe that he really does deal with us on the basis of his grace and not on the basis of how well we perform with our money, whether that's earning or giving, but that it's on the basis of his grace that we are rich in Christ and all of the wealth of heaven is ours. Only then will we be able to earn our money, talk about our money, laugh about our money, encourage one another to be generous with our money, and invest in the kingdom of God with a glad and joyful heart. The disciples asked Jesus, who then can be saved? I mean, they're flabbergasted, right? Who then can be saved? And he looks at them, and he says, with man it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Salvation is possible. 
generosity is possible. Great treasure in heaven is possible because Christ our king, though he was rich, became poor that he might bring the riches of heaven to those of us who are poor and needy. That's the gospel, and that's how it applies to every area of our life, including our money. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these uh, incredibly challenging words and um, the practicality of them. This is not, you are not a pie-in-the-sky, float-on-clouds kind of God. You are in it with us, the nitty-gritty, the budget, the finances, the paycheck. And you say that your love and your gospel applies to every area of our life. Help us believe that. Help us trust you. Help us take great delight in all you've done for us and help that delight show up in the way we spend our money. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Mm -hmm.